Welcome to another episode of Roll or Die. We bring you the big names on this show. And uh, if you don't know today's guest, uh, where have you been? What rock have you been hiding under? Because this guy has probably had one of the biggest rises uh, to stardom on the jiu-jitsu scene that uh, we've seen, certainly in the last couple of years. He's gone from white to brown in, I think it's four years. Mm. 23. He's um hang on, hang on. White to brown in white to brown in twenty-three months. Yeah, so I just before the, the start of the I went white to blue in seven months, blue to purple in thirteen or something, and then brown belt like two months after when I won trials. Oh my lord. Yeah, okay, so carry won, on with that. The, That's crazy. Yeah, he won the over ninety-nine division at the ADCC trials uh two years ago and He's gunning for that spot again, I think, in the upcoming trials. He is Josh Saunders. Thanks for joining us, Josh. Thanks for having me. Um, I'll, I'll tell you how I won trials for the second time. It's already happened. We just got to wait for time to catch up. Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. I see that. Yeah, there's a couple of people in your division, but are you saying that they're they're not they're no factor? Well, you said it. It's my division. Wow, man. <laughs> I like it, man. You talk tough, man. That's crazy. But white <laughs> to brown in 23 months, I've never, I've never heard it. Like Kit Dale and four years was the fastest I'd ever heard. Um, but you're out to just destroy that. Like that, that's crazy. Yeah. So I think uh, as, as far as I'm aware, obviously I haven't been doing the sport for very long, <laughs> but uh, as far as I'm aware, I'm the fastest brown belt in Australian history, uh, especially with no other combat sport experience prior. So no judo, no wrestling. Um, fastest to achieve that rank in history. That's crazy. What, yeah. Yeah, what, what do you think is the source of that? Like, I don't know. Like, what, you must be different. You're built different, man. What is it? Yeah, pretty much. I, I actually, um, it's a little bit facetious to think that it only took 23 months, to be completely honest. I had a 17-year rugby league career, of which uh, a good portion of that in my late teens and early 20s was professional, mm-hmm. all the way up into the NRL. Mm-hmm. And I'd also been, at the time, of achieving the rank of brown, but I've been lifting weights for 12 years and, and studying mindset and psychology and philosophy mm. for the last 12 years as well. So mm. it's a probably a culmination of the 30 odd years of all that stuff piling together and then being unified into one, one very specific field, but all of which those are, I guess, handing the baton on in a sense of like a relay race to the next thing. And jujitsu is just my next leg of, of this race and mm. whatever, happens out of that is whatever happens out of that and uh whatever the next leg of the race is is going to be pretty much brutally destroyed as well so i'm looking forward to that whatever that may be wow okay cool and so tell us of how you actually did discover jiu-jitsu how did how did it come about for you to have all these skills condensed into this this art that we're in now so yeah, this is a great story. We uh we were obviously subject to the lockdowns in early 2020 and all the way through the midway of 2020. And uh, during that period, uh, my best mate and I, Zach, would lift weights fairly often in his garage. We do some kettlebell work and some mace swings and other bits and pieces and uh, not specifically following all the rules that we were given. So <laughs> I don't think too many people outside of that boat. But uh, 
he said to me one afternoon, he rang me and he said, you wanted to come do some karate in the garage? And I said, okay, let's, let's do that. And I thought he was joking. I thought he was going to train lifting weights and do the stuff that we're normally doing. And I got there and three of our other mates were there and uh, we actually were doing jujitsu. And I was like, oh, this is cool. I've never done this before. I'll try it out. And obviously with a rugby league background, had some kinesthetic awareness and some idea of how to move my body and hold people down and get up from being held down. And that's basically the whole sport really without the ball. Mm. And uh, it, loved it. They all basically conned me into uh, into starting it because they said, look, man, we've been training for six to three months between us and we can't do shit to you. So <laughs> this is uh, <laughs> going to be a problem eventually. And then uh, at the time as well, I, I'd, I'd lost my license for 52 months being, a, being an idiot teenager and speeding and driving and doing all these nefarious things on the road. And it actually perfectly coincided that I would get my license back in July of that year. And that also happened to be the cessation of the lockdown period as well. So believe in God or stars aligning or whatever you want to, all of those things lined up very nicely that I'd find a sport that I'd be able to do and have access to get there as many times as possible. Mm. Uh, and that pretty much was the the start of the fast ascension and uh, go, going as, as many times as possible. I think I've missed, aside from moving houses and being sick, I've missed no sessions in the last three and a half years. Amazing. So when you say sessions, like how, how often are you training, Josh? At the current period, I'm doing 13 sessions a week. So Monday through Saturday, uh, two to three sessions a day most days, and then the Saturday is just the one and the Friday is just the one. Mm-hmm. And, you're like and do you have with... Sunday off or no? No no days off or what? Sunday's off. Sunday's yeah. off. Yeah, okay. So you're, dripping with, you're dripping with confidence, man. And it's like, is that one win after another, after another that gives you that confidence? Or is that something that you were parented into? Like, what was your home environment like, man? Because we don't get many um, like you who, who foresee the future as already fully theirs and everyone else can get fucked, you know? And I like it. Don't yeah, get it wrong, it's very rare. <laughs> I'm pretty mercurial in that sense. And it's taken a lot of work. It's, it's yeah. more so the lack of parental guidance that was available to be mm-hmm. to be completely honest and okay. i think that's colloquial with the sense of uh like rich children end up being brats and i think people who come from good households become good people but they don't become savages mm-hmm. and i think if you from a, a lack environment you're fostered you, you're forced to foster that deep within yourself where mm-hmm. you realize i i realized at a year, early young age when i moved out at 16 that i had no one else to back myself yeah uh, i had no one else to back rather than myself so uh, I've just been continually doing that over the last decade and um, continue to build a, a mindset that's fortuitous for these type of sports. And, and rugby league had a big impact on that as well. It's not uh, too uncommon for you to want to hurt your opposite number and really set the tone and set the standard. Whereas mm-hmm. in jiu-jitsu, you don't really get that. It's all peace, love and mun beans and rolling around doing fucking clothed yoga on the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a definite competitive advantage that you see when athletes cross-pollinate towards jiu-jitsu. So uh, some of that has been fostered in as well. And I think it's it's all just the, the summation of these life experiences that I've been able to harness to uh, build my perspective. And here we are. Brilliant, man. So you run uh, HPU Coaching. So tell us a little bit about that. How does that work? Yeah, so HPU Coaching was um, originally a personal training service. It's, I got into that after my uh, rugby league career, or a little bit of a lap over um, in my rugby league career, I was actually waiting tables and making coffee before that. So <laughs> I didn't really fit within that scene all that much. And 
Um, I actually had some guys come up to me like, what the fuck are you doing making coffees? You're like the largest barista I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I'm, uh, I'm Batman, but don't tell anybody. <laughs> it was it was quite funny. I remember that ages ago. There was the guy from uh, Underbelly, the little guy with the really nice blue eyes. I forget what his name is, but I met him a couple of times and he basically said the same thing and it was, uh, it was quite good. But, um, yeah, started personal training, got obviously very interested in the gym and lifting weights at a young age, started at 14 and decided I want to try and help people uh, experience the same physical benefits that I've experienced from that. And then that slowly trickled into coaching with the mindset where I realized that the biggest pitfall for most people losing weight and gaining muscle really wasn't anything to do with those two subjects at all. It was all their, their perspective about it all and how they viewed themselves as a result of what they were trying to do. And I yeah. sort of moved and breathed the mindset stuff and got very asphyxiated with that and infatuated with the whole process of being able to show people new new versions of themselves and mm -hmm. uh, new perspectives on their own lives and what had basically happened to get them where they are and how it was a benefit rather than a hindrance and all these other all these other uh, theories so I, mm -hmm. I then transferred that into an online coaching thing amidst the, the lockdowns because obviously the gyms were closed and I couldn't do anything and Work was tough to come by, so I said, all right, I'll do the internet thing. I'll, I'll reach a broader audience. Uh, did that as I was starting jiu-jitsu, and then obviously now the HPU stuff is all uh, formulated on thinking better and uh, preparing yourself mentally, but also in the facets of jiu-jitsu and how to get as good as possible, as fast as possible. Right. So this is you were talking before we went live, or no, before we started recording about your uh, your course, your online course. So is that what, what is that course all about? So the course essentially is the story journey of how I did what I did. And uh, it's funny because I'm so used to, I lived it obviously. So it's not really that impressive to me. Um, but when I have conversations with people like yourselves, they're like, holy shit, like brown belt in two years and, and, and whatever. And I, 23 always... months, bro. 23 months is not two years. Correct. Okay. Correct. I'm glad I was paying attention. Um, <laughs> it, it's just one of those things that I expect greatness in everything that I do. And I don't really take shortcuts or anything else. So mm. it's kind of like a natural inclination to expect those sorts of things. Not that I don't obviously stop and smell the roses, but definitely an expectation I hold of, of myself and I hold my, my achievements in high regard. So I'm always pushing for that, that next one. I actually asked as a funny side note, I asked Mo Jasson if I could compete at the Thailand trials, which will be early next year. To, so I could be the first person to ever win three trials in two years, right. obviously because the, the COVID period knocked the trials back a year and ah. we're kind of back to back now. And so that will never happen again, which means I'd be the only title holder. That's so cool. Yeah. Unfortunately, if you win a trials, you're not allowed to go to the next the next set. Yeah, it's it's forbidden. But otherwise you take up two spots and have to invite somebody and it all gets a bit messy. So I said, All right, whatever. Um but yeah, the the course is pretty much an evolution of the of the story and people being attracted to to what that possibly means for their ability to get a lot better in the sport. And the colloquial way of learning jiu-jitsu is, is quite outdated and quite old. It's learn a bunch of techniques that you're not going to remember. Uh, you don't get the how and the why of why you were using those techniques. Mm -hmm. And then you go and roll and go hell for leather and absolutely smash each other, come back and do it all again the next day without a plan and a purpose and a structure and a, a hierarchy and all of these sorts of things. And it's, it's obviously a miss to intellectualize the sport too far, um, but we, we definitely do have to put some structure involved in the process as well. So that's basically what I'm offering. Amazing.
Let's say you're like Kit Dale, I guess, like all about concepts and drills don't just build the skills. It's like, yeah, just Kit Dale who's uh, won trials. Yeah, true. Yeah. And Josh, how much do you weigh? Uh, currently, I'm at about 118 kilos floating, between 117 and 120 usually. Okay, so you're probably, I mean, I don't know about your club, but in many clubs, you'd probably be one of the biggest units on the mat, yeah? So yeah. just as an aside, like, how do you go with training with other people? Obviously, everyone's smaller than you. How do you still build your skills? How do you still sharpen your tools when you outweigh most of your partners? Yes, it's a great question. And uh, I, I took a lot of motivation, firstly, from my coach, Luke, who basically said to me the first day I walked into Sydney West, he goes, if you train here for 12 months, you'll win trials. You just have to essentially follow my word. And I was like, all right, cool, no worries. And for the next six to eight months, he made me play guard because it was non-existent. I was a big kid who was coming in, rugby league background, but hated being on the floor. Like the literal whole sport is get your back up off the floor. That's all it is. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's very strange to be laying down in a sport. It's, I, I find that very odd naturally when, <laughs> when I was crossing over. Uh, he, he basically said, you have to develop all facets of your game and we want you playing a small man game as a big man because that is inherently very dangerous. Uh, historically throughout all the divisions of ADCC and IBJJF World Titles, the guys who are big but can play everywhere, they do very well. So it was his foresight on top of that. Uh, It was also looking towards what Gordon's been able to achieve, actually coming from a small type of stature and then then building himself up as his career has progressed. I believe he started as early as the 77 kilo division and has gone all the way up to the 88, 99 and now 99 plus the, the same division as me. And uh, his main training partner is is misses. So if if it's if it works for him, there's a 35 kilo weight discrepancy between them. Uh, I'm I'm assuming um, if they can drill with each other each other and train and learn the techniques with each other, uh, then I'm more than capable of doing that with myself. And when it comes to the training rounds, they obviously don't train together in terms of uh, in terms of training. But um, I facilitate the same mindset if I was versing somebody who's 66 kilos all the way up to a very similar weight class as me. And I think it, it stands a testament to the ability of you to actually define your skill set by how little attributes you use. Obviously, when this comes to bigger weight classes, there's going to be uh, advantages in speed and strength that probably nail the distance between the skill gap. Uh, but as outside of competition, I take a, a pretty keen awareness on making sure that I'm developing skills outside of speed and strength because i don't think that leads to good training outcomes whatsoever Mm. with mindset with mindset do you um because like i'm I'm setbacks how do you handle setbacks because it just seems like you don't have many so are you likely to unravel you know when something happens or do you have setbacks (laughs) what happens of course okay of course everybody does i i think uh some people are good at playing the smoke and mirrors game where you see that they literally don't have any downsides to their personality, to their achievements, to their pursuits or anything like that. And I actually actively seek out those, those instances. So I want to be able to put myself in the worst positions possible, uh, knowing that I've been through there. It's not uncharted territory. I know exactly how I'm going to react under pressure situations and situations of fatigue and all of the rest of the associated things that you might get exposed to in the sport so that when you do get there in competition, when it does matter and the chips are down and you need to perform, you know that you're not 
just going to have to pull a rabbit out of the hat that you're actually more so comfortable being there than the other person is because you've spent more time there more deliberately in, in poorer situations yeah. for a longer period of time than they have. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. And a lot of we see a lot of Australians go overseas and do like a camp, you know, with the B team or with, you know, at Atos or, or wherever with a bunch of um, different places. What's your plans? Are you planning to do any overseas training or are you happy to just stay here in Australia? What do you reckon? Uh, so prior to ADCC, we actually have a good relationship with uh, John Danaher. So we're trained at New Wave prior to, to ADCC World Titles, whether that be this year for or this coming this coming tournament, whether that be for a month or so, um, would obviously help uh, in in some st- like specific developments. Um, there's a little bit of not necessarily contention, but there's obviously two people in the 99 killer division that are already there, in Gordon and Dan. Uh, last time it was no problem. I don't really foresee it being a problem this time, um, but it could potentially limit the options. But as far as uh, training outside of competition, or outside the range of ADCC, I actually said this on another podcast not too long ago, that I want to be the first person from Australia to do what Alexander Volkanovsky has done, to do what Michael Bisping has done, to do what Leon Edwards has done and win a title, like a world title from their home country, never having lived in America. Um, I don't know where this idea had come from but i've said it twice now so i'm kind of fucking stuck to it and i'll i'll die with it <laughs> yeah uh, i think it's all well and good to go off and find the best training but doing a deep dive and studying of those guys you recognize that volkanovsky doesn't really have that many great training partners and up until very recently they were training on puzzle mats for fuck's sake in Wollongong. Yeah. Mm. So if it's not state-of-the-art facility, it's not state-of-the-art training partners where you're attracting all these people because Wollongong's not the best ter- uh, uh, um, tourist destination. So there's not a lot of people that are willing to go down there and train, even if the pound-for-pound number one in the world is there. So if that sets the precedent for what you're able to achieve in terms of training partners and facility, I, I don't need any other team than my own. And I'd, I'd rather have the, the gratification process of taking my coach and my team all the way to the top from the one place from the very beginning and have it all unified in the same realm. doesn't mean that I won't go to the States and train every so often, um, but loyalty is a big thing for me and I'd like to propagate that moving forwards because mm. my coach has done a, a whole shitload for me and he's put another a, another level and trust in me and uh, the, the fostering of our skill set together. I say our skill set because it doesn't really make sense if he's not included in the picture and all the success and everything that comes. Um, so I'd like to put put that forward and and make that happen specifically for coaching and um, well, my coach rather, and then secondarily for Australia because we, we don't get too much love in terms of the gold medal department in in grappling just yet. Mm. So you're saying like, well, I mean, I always see in the UFC countdowns, there's always Craig Jones in the background now with Volkanovski, like he's always there. They fly him in, obviously. They must do that. Um, but yeah, I guess what, what what I'm kind of my question for you is whose whose power have you felt so far out there? Who who you've gone? Wow, this is like on another level. Like you may have beaten them, you may not have beaten them. I don't know, but who do you feel like is is the toughest grapple you've ever had so far? Um, I'd probably say Felipe at, at this stage. Like he he wasn't in in a sense of in a sense of technicality, he wasn't really all that technical uh, in, in terms of me not being able to come up with answers for what he was doing. Um, mind you, this is, again, 
less than two years in the sport. He'd been a black belt for five times longer than I'd even been training at this stage. Wow. He, he didn't do anything new, but the, <laughs> the way that he went through the game or went through the match tactfully was was quite impressive in terms of knowing the rules, knowing where to put the effort in, not going too hard in the first five minutes, allowing the points period to come on and then starting to knock it up a little bit of a gear. And I, I probably, in a sense, went too hard too quickly or attempted to pull things off too quickly and obviously flying over there and the, the big stadium and everything else. I, I would like to think that these things don't bother you at all, but they obviously do have an impact in their own right. And you can try and shut it out as you want, but there just does have to be some level of uh, recency that you've experienced those things. And obviously, Philippe has experienced it in uh, 2017, 2019, and then 2022 also with with multiple titles in both of those ADCCs prior. So, yeah, it's not that he was like strong or fast or anything that I hadn't felt before, but uh, tactfully, he, he played the game very well. Yeah, awesome. So just off that, like, so going in, let, let's assume that, as you said, you know, the 99-plus division is yours, you win the, the trials and and you go again to ADCC next year. Um, what sort of things will be going through your mind in, in your lead-up to that, um, given that, as you said, a lot of these people that you're going to be facing have a lot more experience in the sport? Do you sort of just brush that off or do you what, – what sort of – what's your thought process in that well, I think you're allowed to motivate you even more, right? Because everybody loves the underdog story. Everybody loves the one who comes from the dark shadows and uh, comes out and wins and isn't expected to do anything really. And you see it in uh, Conor McGregor's story going all the way through Cage Warriors and the UFC. They were laughing at him the entire time. He goes, they're laughing at me to say that there'll be an Irish MMA fighter. Then they laughed at me to say you'd be a Cage Warriors champion. Then they laughed at me to say that you'd be in the UFC. Then they laughed at me to say you'd be a champion. Then they laughed at me to say you'd be a double champion. That you're always going to have those people uh, that that are all the way up doubting. And and obviously you have people in your close circle that are uh, encouraging you and, and allowing to motivate you from the other side of things. But there's always going to be these doubts and these um, people who try and negate what you're attempting to do. And that's kind of the fun part of it, right? Because you're allowed to speak these things into existence and say, I'm going to do this. There's there's going to be people that believe you. There's going to be people that don't believe you. It's your ability to be able to shut out those people that don't believe you, allow it to actually gather energetics towards the situation and not take it personally. They're, they're not mm. saying that you can't do it. They're just saying that they can't do it. Mm. It's their own perception situation that they're displaying mm -hmm. for you. Someone calls you an asshole, unless you're like deliberately being an asshole. It's more so their interpretation of the situation. It speaks more to who they are than who you are. So Absolutely. with that fundamental understanding, you charge boards and, and do these sorts of things anyway. And I think that um, it's it's definitely something that I've been thinking about a, a long, long time in a sense of massive, massive achievements. And I like the fact that people sort of don't think you're going to do it. I, I enjoy that aspect of it because then it makes it all the more sweeter when you do do it. I agree, man. And I think laughing at, at Conor McGregor, like that's easy. Like it's better that like laughing is kind of like, it can be taken in many ways. But like when I think about Ronda Rousey trying to get into the UFC and Dana White saying there will never be, and like no jokes about him at all. There will never be women in MMA yeah. or in the UFC is what, what he said. But like, and she, like she just had declared this game and was playing this game until she got what she wanted. And then she transformed the entire landscape of MMA as we know it. And 
like it, yes it's going if you want to do if you want to play the big games and go and go in the uncharted territory you just have to be willing to be trolled hated ridiculed you name it you just have to and, and as you say like not taking it personally that that's it's easier said than done but it's definitely worth it man so what other games have you got to play yes. man you, what, what other big games are you dreaming up where you're going to be called out <laughs> what do you think what's in your future i mean I think in terms of the jiu-jitsu stuff like it's it's obviously uh it saying you're going to be the first first world title holder in adcc from australia and never living in another country to do so that's that's the big one at the minute i, I try not to look too far ahead because that detracts from what you're doing presently uh and if you allow yourself to be distracted then you're obviously going to uh not have a lot of structure towards the path that you're following and you can sort of you can run the risk of of being fantasized with too many different paths and i i think that's what you really have to have as a professional athlete is just this single-minded almost in a sense sadistic focus like you look at people like michael jordan absolute psychopath in terms of competition mm. and that led him his path and obviously many successes greatest of all time all these bits and pieces you did that have detriments and uh things that were on the wayside as he was doing that yes of course it did um but greatness doesn't really wait for anybody so you can't be expect to be well balanced you can't expect to be perfect in your approach you can't expect to dot all the i's and cross all the t's and i don't think that's the place where i'm coming from anyway so that that's the big one at the minute um obviously it takes a lot of energetics to to draft these things from the ether uh and to materialize it and crystallize it into into form I'm getting a lot better at it. I play little games, like little little spiritual games of even even something as simple as like I'm going to get a clean run all the way to the highway today, and my trip is going to be ten minutes less. Mm -hmm. And just playing with that, seeing seeing whether your confirmation skills are correct, whether your intuition is correct, and not necessarily trying to force anything, but seeing things before they've happened, and then proving to yourself in little insignificant moments that it has happened. Mm -hmm. I remember McGregor talking about this when he first came up he's like i see the parking spot right next to the door and then bang it was there and mm -hmm. sometimes it would happen sometimes it wouldn't happen but i'd keep playing the game anyway absolutely and uh I keep rolling. the more that the more that you allow yourself the precedence to set that forth and either confirm or deny your original suspicions whether you do get the result or you don't get the result you're, you're building this intrinsic energetic force that eventually becomes too big to topple. And, and, and also I you're coping with loss. Like when that car park's not there, you're like, okay, fuck, it wasn't there. I rolled the dice. I, I tried to manifest this thing and it wasn't there. And so what, so fucking what my life goes on, you know? So I think that's cool too. <clears throat> exactly. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's a fine line, right? Because depending on how you see it, there's there's obviously the human version of us and then there's a higher version of whatever you want to call it. It doesn't really matter. We don't need to get into semantics, but you don't really know your destined path because it's it's essentially the free will of the higher version of you. So you might not know that uh, an undefeated record or something like that is in your midst. It may not be. Even though you're saying it as a human, that doesn't really manipulate the reality that has already been set forth before i don't believe in determinism or anything else but may, maybe you're actually pondering down the wrong path by anticipating something else for yourself mm. and this is where you have to be open just like you said the wins and the losses because they're both teaching you that you're either 
on the right path or on the wrong path. And the way that you take them rather than taking them personally as just feedback and experiences, the, the better you're going to get at taking all of life's experiences, whether it's the loss of a loved one or the promotion in a job, the, the paradigm of the two ends of the spectrum, you maintain this constant neutrality throughout the middle and you go, all right, well, what am I learning from this? Why did I choose to experience this? Mm. Love it. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier like 13 training sessions a week. What does that look like? Are they all, like 10 of them are super hard, half technical, half hard? Like how do you break it up? Are you doing uh, strength and conditioning in there? What What does it look like? So I do 13 of jiu-jitsu only and then one piss take of a weight session on a Friday Arvo with some <laughs> mates in his warehouse that uh, is a sponsor of mine. Like I said, I've been lifting weights for almost 13 years now and I've built quite a decent base up where I don't really have to put in too much effort to maintain what I've got. It's it's actually a it's an unknown phenomenon for most people, but if you put 10 years of hard work into anything, your ability to maintain that takes about a tenth of the effort that it took to build it, even in terms of business and everything else. Like, yeah, there's going to be growing pains if you want to go to the next level. Of course there is. Uh, it's actually the reverse principle. You have to put in 10 times more effort than you did in the first 10 years to go to the next version. But if you want to maintain that same level, it probably takes about a tenth of the effort. So it's actually quite easy for me to lift weights once a week now and maintain everything that I have uh, mm -hmm. rather than push that forwards. And being uh, a bigger athlete who's stronger, faster, uh, more athletic than, than most people, it, it would be remiss of me to dedicate more time and effort towards that area that I already have such a big advantage. Uh, my disadvantage in the self-assessment that I do doesn't come from weights, but it comes from jiu-jitsu technique. That's not to say that I suck, but I have more gain to, to gain from in, introducing more sessions in the week than I do have weightlifting sessions. But uh, mm. Monday... And Wednesday are three a days, Tuesday and Thursday are two a days, and then the Friday, Saturday is the two days as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're not all hell for leather. I don't think it's wise uh, nor safe for your body to do hell for leather sessions every single session. Uh, they're the underwhelming minority of my week where I really start to push the pace and, and try and gas myself out in a sense. Um Typically, those lie in a Monday and a Wednesday morning just because of the allocation of training partners that I actually can get those scenarios from, which is great. And then the majority of the other sessions is just greasing the groove on skills that I'm working on, whether that be deficiencies in my game, uh, whether that be sharpening the, the things that are already sharp or making sure that I'm maintaining everything else specifically to the things that I'm not working on. So there's a lot of spinning plates when you're developing a well-rounded technique that you have to make sure that you're across. You can't just leave passing alone for three months and then expect to come back and have your passing be exactly where it was. Mm. Skills are diminishable across any field of life. So you do have to be spinning plates on multiple facets of your game at one time. And, and that kind of begets the difficulty in coaching a lot of people because they're, they're just so focused on this one arm bar that they want to do that they can't do, that they, they're just fastidious in trying to track down and trying to get just because they saw some guy in flow grappling do it three weeks ago. Um, that's that's obviously only going to lead you down a path where you have mixed success on one thing and then everything else falls by the wayside. So the way that we structure our training, specifically around competition, is very ADCC focused in all the constituent skills and elements that you need to put together for that. So chasing the back, making sure you can pin people, making sure you can escape from pins, 
don't get scored on going from feet to floor and the reverse order in terms of wrestling up uh, and then making sure you have a broad and diverse skill set around all of those constituents. Would you call yourself like yeah. a like a BJJ nerd or like like you are, are you are you like cerebral about this or is this all felt through the like to go from zero to brown belt in 23 months like I've gone from zero to purple belt in 15 years right so and still training a lot but some bit I like I don't know I don't know yeah. who I pissed off and how I ended up here like this but the bottom line is like I'm on a completely different journey and I've probably forgotten more jujitsu than I've been taught by now but it's kind of yeah. assimilated. So I have a game, but you, it's all fresh for you. Like, you know what I mean? You can probably remember almost every, every lesson you've had, but does that mean you retain a lot? Yeah. Or does that mean you're forgetting a lot? And you're going, fuck, how do I do single X again? Or is it like, like, what, what is life like for you having learned that much jujitsu that quickly? <clears throat> I've been uh, an autodidact learner for a long time. And I, I very, I very heavily detested the structure of the scholastic system because I don't fit into the rote learning method at all. I'm horrible at reciting things. I read them once or twice. But when I when I employ when I employ myself to think about how I would be teaching the data that I'm getting, that's when I get the best retention method. And obviously being heavily autistic helps as well. Are you? <laughs> You we have a lot of our guests say they're autistic, I reckon. I don't, I don't know if I've been tested or not, or I don't know if I have it. I probably am somewhere. I've done one of those fake internet tests and I scored quite highly, so I probably am. You're on the spectrum just somewhere. Okay, cool. We're all on the spectrum. Uh, well, that's why. Yeah. That's why it's true. But, uh, yeah. yeah, so so with the, uh, with the intention of onboarding and then only to teach that information – I've, I've done a lot of research into like Andrew, Andrew Huberman and neuroscience and, and all these bits and pieces of the psychology of learning and what makes people the best learners. I actually did a, a fast reading course by a guy by the name of Jim Quick. He had a head trauma when he was a young kid and um, it, it knocked out a, a large percentage of the cognitive function of his brain, so much so that he had this big internal story that he thought that he was stupid and he thought that he didn't fit in and all these bits and pieces and he recognized that he actually was stupidly intelligent at reciting information in one specific area and it happened to be superheroes so that mm. was the autodidact him learning so much so that he just became obsessed with that and you obviously have uh traits of that within your own childhood like i used to be obsessed with pokemon and my auntie comes over regularly she said you knew every single one on the sheet of 100 and you knew all their elements you knew all their attacks you knew everything and that kind of goes to prove to yourself that you have this innate or ordained ability to be able to recite information that you deem very important. And I went back through that experience and went, well, I was just excited because I wanted to know everything about it, but I also wanted to teach that to other people and give that to other people as a gift. And I think if you employ the the use of teaching it to other people, you actually learn a lot faster. So that's kind of the the cool cohesion of, of my course and my group at the moment that allows me to train full-time and, and allows me to give the ability to share information with people. I'm answering 30 to 40 questions a week, specifically with jiu-jitsu techniques. And mm. some of them are more in, but some of them are less in depth, but that current rote, like uh, just snapping of, of things that are always around in, in a saturated element mm. um, definitely help to retain information. Amazing. Awesome. We're just over two minutes to go, Josh. Um, do you have any final words, any any uh, words of wisdom for our listeners just to wrap it up? 
Words of wisdom. It's a good question. Two minutes um, 24, bro. Two minutes 24. Wisdom, so. <laughs> Don't spend too long thinking. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think in the summation of, of basically what, what this is what this has proven to people is that people who put roadblocks in front of you, they're, they're just speaking to their own limitations. They're not speaking to yours. And the more you align yourself with that sort of understanding, the, the higher your achievement ability and capability actually becomes. And the more that you're able to deter other people's words uh, from, from your own path and the more that you're able to instill this version of, of self-belief and, and really go hard for the things that you say that you want to do, uh, the more that, that is going to come alive. And the at the start, it's going to be difficult. You're going to have a lot of doubts. You're going to have a lot of back steps. You're going to have a lot of adversity. But then it gets easier and easier and easier the more you prove to yourself that you are the person you say that you are. Um, I was fortunate enough to have a lot of people around me in the beginning uh, be very positive and very influential. But that doesn't mean that it couldn't have happened otherwise. So find those people, but also instill your own version of self-belief that anything really is, is doable. It happens every time. Amazing, brother. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for giving up your time and we'll have this podcast out in a couple of weeks. I think it might be after trials, but as you said, you're a shoe in, you, you've already won it. So for our listeners <laughs> out man. there. I can't so wait to see that pretty come through. Next year at the 2024 ADCC and, um, yeah, let's see what, what's going to happen next year. But, yeah, thank you again. If you could share this with your social media, that would be awesome for us just to help grow our audience because, um, yeah, we're just trying to spread the love. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having awesome, me. Brother. Stay awesome. Talk later. All right. See ya. Yeah. Bye.